just in time for summer, the folks at Epic Brewing have released a new canned cocktail, the Utah Margarita. A delicious blend of real lime and agave, the Utah Margarita is ready to drink by the river or in the park. And here's the kicker, no need to buy it at a liquor store. Pick up a six-pack of Epic Brewing's Utah Margarita at any local Harmon's or Trader Joe's, or visit Epic Brewing on State Street in downtown Salt Lake City. Today on CityCast Salt Lake, our lead producer Nick Steffens and our producer Diane Majapinto have been reporting on mass shootings in this country for over a decade. Nick spent 15 years in a television newsroom working in the field and as an executive producer. Diane is a longtime local radio personality and journalist, most recently spending seven years on the mic hosting a beloved morning show. And when we woke up yesterday morning for our daily team meeting, we were all out of ideas. It's Thursday, May 26th, 2022. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. I'm here with our lead producer, Nick Steffens, and our producer, Diane Magipinto. Hello, you both. Hi, Ali. Hey, Ali. Welcome to the CityCast Salt Lake show that you produce. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to have you. We're all here in our purest form, I think. Um, doing our best. So one of the things that we want to do in this conversation is I think like just pull back the curtain a little bit on the conversations that we've been having internally, because I think they probably mirror the conversations that are happening in news rooms and newsy places across this country right now. Um, But Nick, to start us off, like, will you just take us back to this morning's staff meeting? This morning we, we met as we, as we do, most mornings, and mm-hmm. began discussing how we can cover these events out of Texas. How can we do it in a way that is meaningful and with compassion? And we started coming up with pitches. And we we had topics like, what's being done to keep our schools safe? Or maybe we could talk to a uh, mental health provider or a counselor or somebody in that line of work. Um, and then it right. dawned on me mm-hmm. that these Topics that, that we were pitching could have been pitched 10 years ago. We could have added, let's just give our platform to an elected official who wants to say guns aren't the problem. Mental health, lack of mental health resources are the problem. We would have had the full uh, cast of story pitches from 10 years ago in the television newsrooms that I used to work with. And that kind of set me into a rage. Yeah. That to me represented how yeah. little yeah. has changed in our conversation and how little has changed in our actions surrounding these terribly sad, terribly tragic events. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, like our mood was sour from the start. I'm actually pretty sure, Nick, the first thing you said when we all hopped on the Zoom was, I'm in a shit mood this morning. That's about right. Yeah. Like just a heads up, just a heads up. I am like, and Diane and I were like, yep, same. Mm -hmm. Yep. Roll call. And so I think like what happened is that our mood got increasingly worse as we talked about how to, like you said, how to provide context or how to cover or how to honor this unspeakable tragedy in a way that we didn't do 
a week ago or that we the kind of coverage we haven't seen a week ago, a year ago, 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago. And and one of the things that the conclusion we sort of reached is like maybe the formula is part of the problem or maybe the formula is part of the problem. Right. And so how do we how do we be a conduit for this conversation without ending up with either a board that looks like what it looked like 10 years ago or like without covering it in a way that just allows us to move on business as usual. And I don't mean to imply that that's what other, that that's what the goal of newsrooms, right? Like I think what we're here to talk about is like the weight of discussing this is incumbent on everyone who is in media and everyone is trying to figure out how to navigate this with the media climate that we've got and the political climate that we've got. How can we change the conversations on platforms such as ours in a way that encourages or pushes change in policy, that pu- encourages or pushes change in the ru- where the rubber meets the road out in our world, out in our schools, out in our communities? Yeah. I mean, and and you both have been working in this sector for so long. And Diane, I think a lot about, you know, you worked at a local radio station for a long time. I used to wake up to your voice. <laughs> a lot of people across this valley woke up to your voice. You might have been the first person they heard discussing one of the many horrific mass shootings that we've we've experienced in this country. What how do you like what is that like? Like, how do you determine what tone to take? I really just go with how I feel. Um, yeah. Sorry if I get upset. This is really upsetting to me. Um, that was something I, I had to do for sure, was to keep it together and to be pretty level-headed and to try to get to the bottom of what people really want to know in the very limited time that that particular um, time slot allowed for me. And to know sometimes that I was finding out right before (laughs) I got to the studio and had an hour to prepare. Um, There was also a, there's a, maybe I'll reveal it now, but there's a secret Facebook group for morning hosts. And so we would be able to share what our approach might be or what our sentiments are. Because I think what was important and what I what I heard this morning um, on public radio was this sort of equilibrium and this um, assuring and um, predictable voice there. Even though this tragedy happened yesterday, you could count on that the next day. And what they, you know, and what... For example, where I worked, we were a local affiliate for a national um, radio. And so we would localize what was happening on a national level when we could. Um, try to follow that tone also. The thing about radio, too, is that like, and I think podcasting, which is radio's cousin, is that it's just, it's really intimate. Like you're in someone's ear. Like right now we might be in your AirPod, which is like actually inside your ear canal. And so I think there's like a level of intimacy and connection there that people are seeking when they turn on the radio. Um, And I think for that reason, there's even more of a, I think, a weight on radio folks to deliver the absolute correct tone. But what is that tone? Because, 
I mean, one of the things that I think a lot of reporters, local journalists bump up against is like, you know, when you look at national media apparatuses, they're not the same people that are on the ground reporting these stories. And we saw with like the coverage of Roe and we've seen with like a lot of major coverage over say probably a half a century, there's this idea or this effort that a reporter should divorce themselves from their reporting personally. And I think these kinds of moments are when we really, I think, break through that, that, that sort of like fourth wall comes down and um, it, I think, forces us to question how much we should have it up in the first place. If it is, I mean, like this would be my personal opinion, if it's possible that at times it contributes to the continuation of the kind of coverage that in our staff meeting we were like, we feel won't lead to political action. I think it's worth noting as well too that um that diane and i both have school-aged kids mm-hmm. um right around this right around this age more or less and and you ex you you view the news differently you mm-hmm. it, it it hits differently it feels more personal mm-hmm. in in many ways and that that to your point ali about like where that line is where where um reporters are journalists or commentators mm-hmm. um, engage their personal lives with the news or let um, or are willing to get personal with with these topics that they're supposed to be objective with um, mm-hmm. it's it, it I'll tell you it becomes much more difficult yeah when um, when in this case you have a child in school mm-hmm. yeah yeah I wonder how afraid we are of making people too uncomfortable uh-huh if they feel too uncomfortable or too horrified, will they just turn it off? Will they just fatigue from the topic and walk away from potential action? And so are we getting the kind of language that we've become so used to, right? Gun violence, these sorts of, these these words or word pairings that have become almost, I mean, you read them and your eyes just, just kind of go right over them because you read them so often. And so it's like the reporters, I think, are, or people reporting on these stories are trying to balance, like, giving people really a sense of how, of the horror, of the severity, without pushing them completely out of the conversation. That's a toughie. Nick, you worked in a TV newsroom. How is TV different? Because like going to school the next morning with your camera, like that's hard for those reporters. Like they don't want to, they don't want to be putting cameras in people's faces. That's their job. I think it's different in a couple of ways. I think, yeah, absolutely. The the, kind of the visual element of the medium changes the way that you interact with the public and the way that you gather and ultimately produce the news. Mm -hmm. I think there's another difference comes from the way the news cycle has changed over over the last real, real, let's, over the last 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, television in particular is a medium that has multiple deadlines throughout the day. Mm-hmm. So the um, pressure to to produce so much content over the course of the day, mm-hmm. I think or I worry leads um, television um, 
executives and television news directors and so on and so forth to kind of rely on the same narrative patterns. Hmm. Those patterns that we saw this morning in our, you know, in our kind of early discussion um, about what we, how we wanted to cover this topic today. And some of that, I think, can be attributed to necessities of the pressure of the job, that, that, it's, that you don't always have the time to be as thoughtful as you'd like to be or to be as compassionate as you'd like to be mm-hmm. um, or, to be at, or to think outside of the box and take a different look at, at a very complicated topic. Um, and so the, the, the pressures of the daily grind, I think, do factor into this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I remember being on Twitter last night, I think like everyone else who was on Twitter, you know, scrolling and seeing a lot of, you know, for example, producers in the comments of family members who were tweeting or sharing their stories and saying, hey, any chance you'd want to join us tomorrow morning for a conversation? We'd like to focus on victims and survivors. And it's like they were just getting ratioed in the comments by people who were like, how dare you? This is so insensitive. And it's like, Mm -hmm. that's their job in many ways. And also it's probably not the first time they've done this, that they've had to go looking for family members to talk to. I mean, to get back to our initial sort of point, which is like the formula is what I think we three have been bumping up against and trying to navigate. And the existence of the formula, I think, is incredibly frustrating because it just shows Mm -hmm. how common these unthinkable events are. Right. So I I think the sort of irony of the rote repetition here of mass shootings and the messages we see from the country's leaders or state leaders or municipal leaders here in Utah um, also set up reporters and others covering these stories for that kind of response. And it's hard to go beyond that. Right. Um, I think it's hard for, like, let's talk local media. It's difficult to push up against these leaders. There's sort of one after another after another. An example with the Las Vegas mass shooting, then Governor Herbert, you know, thoughts and prayers, flags at half staff. What are you going to do to change things? How are you going to, you know, uh, assuage the public or lead the legislature? Or what are you going to do? It's, um, you know, here we are. How many years ago was that? 2017. And then you have, for example, management saying, we'll lose our listeners, we'll lose our viewers, we'll lose our readers. You know, we need to just toe the line and say, these are the tweets that Senators Romney and Lee posted yesterday, and Representatives Moore and Curtis and Owens and Stewart. Um, I, and you don't get much out of that. In particular, me taking a look back this morning, thinking, gosh, it's just the same, same message, different year, different decade. Right. Copy paste. One of the things that I woke up this morning and was thinking about, too, is, you know, how many reporters are chasing down the people with power to get comment from them and how it was just six weeks ago that the legislature was moving forward provisions that would limit press access at the Capitol, limiting the rooms that reporters can go into, limiting the amount of time they have with senators the message from above to newsrooms is grab a screenshot of the tweet. That's what we're giving you and that's what you'll get. And if you ask too many questions, we might not invite you to the next presser. 
And so it's, I think it's also, there, there has to be a lot of accountability on people in power who are hiding from having these conversations. And so if you are a newsroom, you're like, well, we've got, we're going to read the tweet out loud five times. Maybe that's what we should do. You can also call press offices for senators and representatives and they'll just direct you to the tweet. They'll say that's, that's all there is to say. And I have to say that like being on Twitter last night, um, I just, my, I was, I just went the full emotional spectrum and reading the copy and pasted tweets from our elected officials and just the anger I felt at that, that again, this cycle, it feels like it just feels like a cycle. And then scrolling down and seeing one of the pictures of the, the kids who had died in this, in this shooting and just the, just this wave of, of sadness and helplessness. And the, the back and forth, I think, of the Twitter sphere is kind of probably why I woke up in a kind of a helpless shit mood today, <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. and which is what which yeah. leads us to where we are right now. <laughs> right. I mean, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, again, sort of a gleaned from my timeline, is the video that I have seen shared the most, I think, is Steve Steve Kerr. Right, is Steve it Steve Kerr? Yeah. Kerr Steve Kerr, Kerr, yeah. Co- coach Steve of the Kerr. Golden State Warriors. Golden State Warriors. Forgive me, I'm not a sports lady. Um, and he said, you know, he was supposed to give a presser before the game last night. He said, we're not going to talk about basketball. None of that matters. And he gave a really impassioned plea. And the point that he made was, this is 90% of Americans who want to see gun reform, who want to see laws enacted, who want to see something Mm -hmm. done, right? Right. Being held hostage by 50 senators. And really shortly after I saw that, I got an email from Anne Helen Peterson, who's a a writer from Montana who writes about the West a lot. And she said, she described this moment as the anguish of minority rule. And I just felt that so deeply. And I think for us waking up this morning, the anguish of minority rule, what conversation could possibly cause change if not these, this violence? What, who could we interview this morning that would get us to a different place than we were a week ago? Well, I think the, the Kerr video in particular is really interesting because Steve Kerr is recognizing a platform that he has that amplifies his voice. And, and of course it's through sports. It's the NBA playoffs. Um, a lot of people watching. Um, and I just, I have to, I have to commend his recognition of that platform and his deliberate choice to use it and to use it directly and to call out specific legislation and to call out specific paths that could begin addressing this, you know, this problem that again, just feels like it's happening over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I saw that I shared it. I was really taken with his statement and that he left the room. Like, this is totally, I am controlling this all where exactly what we're talking about. I'm not seeing any of our representatives in Congress saying, I won't accept money from the NRA or I will work 100 times harder. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the the Mitt Romney tweet that was like, 
you know, impassioned. And then the last sentence was, we must find answers. And he's just been getting called out for being, you know, having accepted 13 million plus dollars from the NRA over the course of his career. And it's like you tweeting at us that we must find answers is gaslighting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it is, and it contributes to this sense of hopelessness. You tweeting that Mitt Romney, Senator Romney, contributes to this sense of hopelessness so much more than any good or condolences or kindness it could even possibly deliver. And so I think that, again, the anguish of minority rule, like as an outlet with a platform, as a conduit for storytelling in our community, how do newsrooms say anything but yell, do something at the people in power? But you can't not, right? I mean, even a call to action seems a little bit out of the ordinary for straight up news organizations to say, you know, this is the people's, <laughs> this is the people's government. And here's how you can get in touch with the people that were elected to represent you. Um, that's not even done. And at a certain point, I think journalists and our media outlets are part of our community too. And there is an obligation to, I think, improve that community. And th- with this particular topic, Again, I'm over. I'm, I, I myself am demonstrating what I'm frustrated by, which is just the re- repetition. It seems over and over again, without any meaningful change, mm-hmm. and that's how we have come dangerously close, in my view, to normalizing something that should never be normalized. This type of violence. Yeah. And and yeah. again, the fact that we have um, a playbook for how we cover these, it is to me glaring indication of what a problem this is. Okay, my last question for you both. What's one thing that you're doing either to cope or contribute to a solution or feel like you're putting pen to paper around this issue? What's something that's that's keeping you going? Nick, you first. Between my, uh, my time in the television newsroom and then my time here at CityCast, I, um, I spent about five years in a high school classroom. And I will say the thing that gives me hope on over and over again, on many topics, including this one right here, is young people. They yeah. are so smart. They are so organized. Their communication is so clear. Their passion is so well-defined. It's just, it blows my mind. It blows my mind, Allie, right? Because when I think back to being a uh, a 16, 17, or 18-year-old, and then I think about the, you know, the teenagers that I was working with as a high school teacher, it just, the difference is astounding. The difference is astounding. And so I feel like if, um, if we can hold on for a few more years, this generation that is leaving high school and starting college right now is going to do great things. Yeah, eventually we will have no choice but to replace our gerontocracy. Yes. <laughs> because nature will have nature its way. Nature will have its way. It always does. Diane, what about you? I can't tell you how excited I am for 
this evening because I'm chaperoning my son's junior high or middle school dance. It's just seventh and eighth graders. The eighth grade finished classes last week and they're all buddies and he's looking forward to seeing them and um, I'll visit with some parents and I think the dance is outside so it should be a beautiful night and it, again oh, as Nick yeah. was saying being around young people and just soaking up their energy and their their goodwill. What about you Allie? Well, you won't be surprised because I feel like this is the soapbox I've been on all week, but I'm giving blood again. You can give platelets every two weeks. You can give whole blood every two months. I mean, look, I'm writing my senators. Yeah. I'm donating right. to organizations sure. that are yeah. doing this work. I think that's, you know, that's that's the implied. But the University of Utah is a level one trauma center, and it's the place people go in, when they're facing horrific crisis or horrific violence and they need blood to survive them. And so it's my little tiny, tiny way of feeling like I can contribute to just a tiny little bit of salvation in all of this. And so I'm giving blood and I'm booking it out for the rest of the year. Every two weeks, I'm going to go give platelets and watch TV while I do it or listen to a podcast and... Just getting that on the calendar feels like a little step. So that's what I'm up to. Um, thank you both so much for your your time. And I just so enjoy working with you. And I love you lots. And thanks for having this conversation with oh, me. Thanks, Allie. Thanks, Allie. Love you too. One more thing before we go. I got a call from one of our listeners about Tuesday's show that I think you will enjoy. As always, you can call me, beat me if you want to reach me anytime at 801-203-0137. Hi, Ali. My name is Kevin Randall. I live in the ballpark neighborhood in Salt Lake City. And I just wanted to thank you for the podcast on blood donations. I mean, as a gay man, this topic really frustrates me and before I came out, I donated religiously every six months, and now I can't because I'm sleeping with my super hot husband, and that's just not okay. <laughs> um, Allie, seriously, my blood is rich. It's like it's full of life-saving plasma. We're talking grade A quality blood here. So, in fact, I'm actually a positive. I think you said on your podcast that that's in high demand. So I'd like to help out. We really need to move past these discriminatory policies. Um, and allow gays to donate some of that red protein. So anyway, thanks for talking about that on your podcast. Oh, and um, happy Pride. That's all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around this city. Bye.